Uh, Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, one second, I apologize. There we go. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Malcolm. Good morning. Uh, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> one incident, and all of a sudden, at least based on my research, synagogues are starting to approach security a little differently. We know what happened this week in Crown Heights. Um, you know, the, uh, according to reports, this uh, uh, this um, um, uh, perpetrator was specifically telling everybody he wanted to kill a Jew. Yet, of course, afterwards he's painted as some type of mental patient and, you know, not all there, etc., etc., uh, you know, I, I don't know. Do we call this like a a hybrid situation, a combination terror attack slash madman? I think there's a hesitation in New York City to label this as a hate crime against Jews. And not just in New York City. I think that there's a general resistance. It used to be said that the, the police were reluctant to label things as anti-Semitic or other things because once it's a hate crime, it becomes the statistic and it, uh, you, the feds come in, and uh, therefore there was a reluctance to do so. In this case, I think it follows what we've seen in, in several instances, and that's a, a reluctance. And sometimes it's warranted. You know, you can't have somebody who's really not made motivated by anti-Semitism per se, but is mentally mental patient, and this guy was uh, off his meds, et cetera, et cetera. But clearly, there was this element. And the refusal to, to acknowledge it and to treat it, and I think the mayor going out to, to Crown Heights was an important gesture. But we should hear more about it because the, the, there's a failure or reluctance to acknowledge anti-Semitic incidents when the vast majority of hate crimes in America are against Jews, not against Muslims, which gets immediate coverage and reaction. It is, it is against Jews, and the, this recognition at least will bring... Um, perhaps additional attention. Uh, I think the NYPD has proven in the past uh, sensitive to, to, to these issues and sending additional police on holidays to synagogues. And most of all, in our own community, a willingness to acknowledge facts, not to create panic, not to exaggerate and, and to, to exploit issues. But we see always the immediate reaction for a day, for three days, for a week. And then it dissipates. Yeah, the mental condition of this man, the attacker, uh, has really clouded the situation because it sounds like you would classify this, I don't know if we'd say terror attack, but certainly a hate crime against Jews. And that should put, instead of keeping it as an isolated incident and considering it that way, it should put everybody on the alert that every single venue that has any type of Jewish identity is a target. And it, it, it absolutely that, that all of us can be victims, and it can be uh, truly just uh, coincidental that it's a Jewish target, or it can be deliberately chosen as a Jewish target. But the message, the over, the long-term message here is that here's somebody who got into the building before, and steps were, were taken. Some there is a police uh, uh, presence. presence. Uh, outside of of 770, so there was a quick response, but uh, you could the, the, this could have been a much greater disaster uh, had had there not been that immediate uh, response in the presence of the police officer there. So people, we have to look at ways, and uh, you know we've set up scan 
your community network, if they go to the website, scanus.org, there's a lot of advice on what to do, what synagogues can do, things that don't cost a lot of money. And as you know, there are grants. Many, many Jewish institutions have applied for them and gotten them from the federal government. Everybody should apply. Put up cameras around the synagogues. Train people to be aware and to, to respond appropriately. Have the connection to the police ready if, if there, God forbid, something happens. There's a lot that can be done, but it can't each time be that, that for the next 15 minutes after an attack, everybody's aware. We saw it after the attack in Seattle, in L.A., and other places. And then so quickly it dissipates, and when you tell people, look, here's what you can do, here are the sites you can go to, schools call me and say, listen, we, we want to do it, and we will send people to help train them and look at the guards. You know, when we checked the guards in various places around the country, we found out that a third of them had criminal records. Oh, boy. So it's not just what you do, it's how you do it, having the knowledge, and the knowledge is available, and the police will come and give you advice on, on the security as well. By, I'm sorry, by the... DHS does it, too. Say it again? And the Department of Homeland Security has people who do it, and we recently met, you know, the NRA has 65,000 people around the country. They said, we're ready to go and help guide Jewish institutions, not just with getting guns, but in terms of security measures. There are a lot of resources that have to be tapped into. You know, the um, what was interesting is if, in fact, and I have no reason to believe it's not, if, in fact, this is what the perpetrator was saying as he was, you know, attempting to and successfully stab this young man, for whose speedy recovery we pray, um, it, it tells you something about incitement. Here you have a quote-unquote mental patient, you know, somebody with mental problems, and one of the things that they're chanting as they do this is, you know, is anti-Jewish, is anti-Semitic. And, you know, we always talk incitement in Israel and how it has an effect on people. Here we see that somebody who obviously grew up or, you know, has recently been in an environment where people speak like this and have, you know, thoughts like this and, and spread the word, uh, uh, you know, about those thoughts, it, it shows you what kind of effect it could have on somebody. Absolutely right. That the And, and it's a climate that's created. Again, it doesn't mean in every instance that this is a plot and that there are other ties, but in so many of the times that everybody, that people say, lone gunman, lone, no, that's not true. You're right. It's a, a climate is created, and it's not just Jews. If you look at the what ISIS and all of these groups are doing, now it's spreading the beheadings and the uh, these brutal physical assaults done in organized fashions that uh, people tend to, to dismiss and, and, and not realize the origins of a lot of these things. And it can be in a prison. It can be, you know, they just uh, had some articles about the Islamic States, one of the senior commanders. And it talks about how the origin of the group was in an Iraqi prison under, the, uh, under American control. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, we don't realize sometimes in this hub of safety and security, relatively speaking, we do not realize what is happening in this world of ours. And in America, people think that, you know, we look at Europe and it's easier to see it when it's far away. Yeah. But, you know, uh, Germany arrested 300 people and announced a prosecution against 300 people for uh, supporting ISIS. There are arrests going on all over of people who were in Syria, who were training who are, and, and the vast majority of those who are there and training in Raqqa for terrorist attacks abroad, and the Khordosh group, which is specifically established to carry out terrorist attacks abroad by al-Qaeda, 
that uh, uh, we have not yet begun to see the impact of some of these groups. Um, by the way, uh, a little bit off topic, but I know we'll get to it eventually, and you just reminded me about it when uh, you talked about how tough we have to be on these groups. Uh, Reuters claims that Israel will not press Washington to tighten sanctions on Iran while nuclear negotiations continue for the next six months, but they'll push for tough action if the talks June deadline is not met. This according to a senior Israeli official. Is this officially the first victim of the early Israeli elections? Because I alluded to last week, I don't know if you agree, that uh, now that the campaign has begun and this whole process has begun, Israeli pressure on the U.S. and others uh, to really crack down on Iran ha- has to lighten up because, you know, there's a there's obviously a big leadership question mark right now in Israel. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, there are people who will argue the opposite, and that is that taking a tough stand on Iran is a, is a popular position in Israel and pressing for actions to, to punish Iran for its violations. And as you saw this past week, they, they found a violation, and, and I'm sure you it's one of many, that uh, they were they were importing parts uh, in violation of the Security Council resolutions, in violation of the JPOA, the Joint Agreement, uh, parts for the plutonium reactor. And by the way, when you violated the the message the administration had put out early on was that if they violated, we will support additional sanctions. Mm. And we have not seen that support obviously right. now with Congress out. You're not likely to see anything until uh, January, so Israel's not backing, doesn't have to back off. It's the Congress is not in session, and the administration is not going to put forward uh, new sanctions. They're, they are implementing the ones in place, and they have uh, periodically named additional um, individuals or agent, uh, institutions as targets uh, of the sanctions. So the announcement that you're referencing is is a um, is it, it, I think the reaction is a different one. And Netanyahu's moderate reaction, and in fact portrayed in the media as welcoming the Iranian decision, was based on the fact that he thought they were going to accept a much worse decision, which is the one, and the plan, which is the one that was uh, being negotiated between the P, uh, P5 plus one, the permanent five, and uh, and Germany. Uh, the, Israel's fear was that they would accept that at this time, and then finalize it. It's not the case. They didn't accept it. There are a lot of open issues. The number of centrifuges, the transparency, the, the weaponization, there are uh, critical issues that are, are remain open. In other words, there would not have been a June deadline if that would have been accepted. There would, there, that's right. There would have been, a, there would have been a, an extension to work out the details. This right. way they have four months now to come to an agreement, and then the seven months is when the final agreement is to be presented. But in principle that would be done within the, the four months. And as you know, Secretary Kerry and Prime Minister Netanyahu are meeting in Rome right. uh, over the, on Sunday, but it's not going to focus so much on Iran. This is going to focus on the PA's movements at the, uh, at the United Nations. you got to give me something, Malcolm, on this uh, you know, victim of the Israeli campaign. You know, we're, we're trying to convince people it's a bad idea, and I know I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek because we know it's a bad idea for many reasons, but... I, you know, that I, I would think that uh, with this lull, with this, you know, with this uh, break in leadership, and you see, by the way, you know, those who think that Netanyahu is in a great position of power, already we see alliances that are doing their best to get together and, and defeat him. So That's you'd... right, and I think that, that nobody wants a controversy while you're running or anything that could be portrayed in a negative way that, that U.S. Israel relations 
have suffered and that uh, to put them back on track you need new leadership uh, but you know it works both ways there are people in the administration who are arguing against certain measures that are being contemplated involving Israel and especially about settlement uh, construction or construction even in Jerusalem because they think it'll help Netanyahu if, if they attack him. You know, the administration is not popular in Israel. They would say that the, uh, an action against the, on, on that issue would give Netanyahu another electoral issue and would give him a boost amongst the, the constituency. Right. So uh, things work in many strange ways in this. But Israel uh, is showing and is still going after Iran in very strong ways. What they, the, the bombings in, in Syria, these are the eighth this year, took out very serious places, uh, warehouses with huge stockpiles of weapons, including rockets. And this came from Hezbollah. Uh, um, spokespeople and publications acknowledged that these were um, this was material belonging to Hezbollah on its way. These are new smuggling routes that they've uh, they developed. And it's another way that, that Iran is cheating. Uh, you saw also that Hamas was in Tehran this week, and they are reconciling. You see that their activities in Yemen continue, and now, and I've talked about the the four, the, the what Khomeini said that for the first time, Shiites control four Arab capitals: Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. I will add a fifth, and that's Sudan. And you will see the increased activity and the presence, and the fact that you have a battalion of IRGC there. They're building air bases, security systems. This will be number five. And the, so Iran is using all this time uh, to move ahead. Israel is not sitting on its hands. Obviously, it cannot uh, tolerate these advanced weapons getting uh, uh, into the hands of, uh, of Hezbollah, which already has this huge stockpile uh, of weapons. The, so the, the political overtones obviously have implications. What's Israel's relationship with Sudan? Terrible. Obviously, Sudan has been the staging ground for distribution of weapons into Africa, Libya, Sinai, Gaza. So Iran basically has expanded. That's what it is. They, you know, moving all the time. As is ISIS, and the, and the new the new strategy. So it's crazy for the United States to even concentrate on trying to inspect in Iran itself at this point. No, well, that's in terms of the nuclear program. This, all these things are still using conventional means and and. What, what you're, where you're right is that, that if you augment it by having, uh, if Iran had a nuclear weapon or the intimidation capability of saying we are, are there, we just have to assemble it, uh, it will make it all the more. But you have Iran continuing to extend its influence, uh, engaging in all these subversive activities, supporting, getting more of an, an inroad all the time into Iraq and the bombing, you know, that was announced, uh, even though the United States said they didn't coordinated, and we didn't know. You see the reaction, which I said last week. There's nobody believes that. They right. can't believe that we would put our pilots at risk or that, that it's not being coordinated through the uh, Iraqi government. Right. And ISIS is now targeting Saudi Arabia and uh, Bahrain and other, uh, other countries, and they talk about a new strategy, which is similar, meaning that they learn you take territory, you go do what you can in Syria, in Iraq, and then you move on. And the next place they're going to try to move on and is in the eastern quarters in where the Shiite population resides in Saudi Arabia. They're going to uh, look at um, they are operative in other countries uh, to use. They use their terror. They use it to recruit people. They use it to gain resources. And 
they will also be targeting more and more the West. Uh, Malcolm Honline is with us. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Manhope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmnam.org, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios here in Jersey City, New Jersey. Welcome those who are tuned in around the world on the NSN app for iPhone and Android. couple of election questions, if I may. I've been asked this more than once in the last week. It may just be a technical issue uh, that could answer it. it. Was it impossible for the prime minister before the dissolution of the government to form another coalition? In other words, not to be too uh, cynical, if in fact he was going to make a deal eventually, which he's going to have to do with whatever new partner, if he if he does in fact find himself in a position of power to make a deal, you know, once the uh, March elections are over, and he would have to make a deal with smaller parties anyway, wouldn't he have been able to bring those smaller parties into a coalition government now and not ha- and not uh, completely dissolve the government, or it doesn't work that way? It is actually a good question. It's one that's being asked because the people really didn't want an election. I've yet to meet anybody who really says that they wanted an election, including candidates in it. Well, I would think the prime minister would love that system, if legal, better than going to new elections. So it is legal. He could have put together a new coalition. But once he fired them, and he there were entreaties made to some of the smaller parties, religious parties and others. I know that um, it was true also of Lapid, and he denied it. But they have said that they would take a lie detector test. Uh, to show that, that, in fact, he had reached out to the religious parties to talk about creating an alternative government that they would have put together, you know, a, a majority of the Knesset members. If, I think if Netanyahu felt that he could really do it, he would have done it. Mm. I think under the circumstances, he felt this was uh, the better option. And, of course, he was riding high in the polls, and now we see that, uh, you know, he's vulnerable. I wouldn't take all of the reports and all of these uh, predictions now too seriously. Israelis are notorious for telling the truth to pollsters and lying at the polls so that whatever people predict is not the case. The immediate uh, jump in Labor Party because of Livni joining uh, Bougie Herzog, it does reflect something, but I think that those numbers will sh- will change uh, radically during the period of up-down, but they will change. They're proposing, a, people, they're proposing a system where each of them rules for two years. Yes, and it's not very popular. Yeah, that in itself should be a death knell. And, I mean, well, it's not going to be a death knell. Remember, we had it between Perez and Shamir. Yeah, but that was by default. That wasn't going into the election. I agree. It is different, and I the reaction I hear to it is is not good. And, and it hasn't been approved yet by the Labor Party, so he could find the Bougie, uh, Herzog could find himself with some problems in that. Look, people get tired, and Netanyahu has been in a long time. This government's just two years old, but the average Israeli government lasts two and a half years. So it's not that uh, different. It's the it's a victim of the system, uh, of the you know the lists, and which inherently create unstable governments unless you have somebody wins an overwhelming majority. And and depends what you do with it. I still think the main issues are the domestic. On the outside issues, they agree. On Iran, you have overwhelming support of dealing with the PA with other things. And and the vast majority of Israelis, left and right, don't believe that there's a real opportunity with Abbas now for peace. So it's, it's it's going to focus largely on the domestic economic issues. There, Netanyahu had a big advantage because he stabilized the economy as minister of finance, and they credit him with a lot of the longer-term uh, benefits. But right now, you don't hear that being argued. The election, uh, you know, will go through so many mutations over the next uh, 
couple of months. And I believe that when the people go into the booth, they really make a decision about who they think can be capable of being prime minister. And that, that's really the issue I hear most debated is, are there alternatives? What are the alternatives? Who can really you know, lead the country in, in this very critical time domestically and internationally? The uh, early Likud the primary elections he got, I, I don't know if that one-week difference is what kept out Gidon Saar, but Gidon Saar is basically out at this point, right? That's not what he, he I think he, I met with him a couple of weeks ago, and my sense was that he would not enter the politics, go in, and I think he's right. You know, sometimes when you step back, people reassess, they miss you, they want you back, and, you know, he's young, he could run for prime minister again the next time. Yeah, which I guess would be in about 11 months or so, right? <laughs> three minutes. Eli Yishai is leaving Shas or not? That's a good question. Uh, it's not clear, and uh, he got permission, it seems, from some of the Haredi leaders for a new party uh, with, uh, with Ariel, and we'll have to see. I don't know. Actually, it's a, it's a tough one. And Moshe Kachlon has named his party Kulanu, and I thought it was ironic that it took 66 years for there, be, for there to be a Kulanu party in Israel. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean there wasn't one in the past. <laughs> there may have been. Oh, you're right. Shopping name. You're right. There may have been. <laughs> I should check that out. <laughs> and and, uh, and the fact that the uh, Spartak and primarily religious uh, parts of, uh, parties in in Shas are splitting, um, this this could be a real problem. And he and and Derry gave him uh, a lot, you know, in the discussions in terms of promoting uh, Yishai, mm. uh, and the fact that um, the Tacoma faction leader Ur Ariel would split from the Jewish home and join him. Uh, plus, you have, we have to see who, who will join um, the uh, Kachalan, who could be the kingmaker. And I think I said this two weeks ago and a week ago when, when we discussed it, and people don't, don't yet, uh, I think, take him seriously enough that he could be, depending upon who he gets into the party and what kind of the platform, how, what kind of uh, negotiator he is, uh, could be uh, a critical factor. You could we see the attempted alliances between Lieberman and um, and Kachlan and maybe uh, Lapid or maybe others. Uh, it's it's all very volatile right now. There'll be a lot of shifting, and we'll have to see what happens. And it depends also on what happens to Israel. If God forbid there's terrorist attacks, if there was today. You know, with the acid thrown at these uh, Jewish women. That, the uh, continued incitement, etc. There are a lot of things that will affect the outcome of this election and who people have a real sense of confidence in. Oh, no question about that. Um, the, there are uh, Israelis living abroad, meaning living outside of Israel, uh, many of them supposedly, at least what we read, who are planning on going back to Israel on Election Day to vote. In fact, they were looking for discounts on planes uh, and hoping that the Israeli government would, in fact, influence certain airlines to offer discounts they can go back and vote i i find that interesting um i don't know what happens with people outside the united states when it comes to elections which uh, what percentage of them are interested in making sure that they somehow cast a ballot there's no absentee ballot in israel you got to be in the country are you surprised that so many who live outside of israel want to be part of it no i think that that's always been the case and it sometimes is a distortion but uh people uh, I think it shows still their commitment if they're living abroad. The um, uh, what impact it has? They tend to vote more for, let's say, center left and 
for right parties. Um, and, and but but always the number of people flying home that week, the week of an election, is is always very significant. Yeah, um, I the outcome is already predetermined. Well, yeah, but based on your theory, time I think it'll be much higher because I think it'll be close. uh, As we get closer to it, it will still be a very close election. Right, but even generally, based on your theory, you would say there's never, uh, you know, it's never. We never know what's going to be because, again, the polls are so unreliable in Israel. So, and as you said, you know, Kahlan is now designated the chairman of Kulano till 2023. So even when you have a new party comes in. The messages that they send sometimes really turn off the uh, Israeli uh, voters, and you know they they feel sometimes that it doesn't make a difference. It does make a difference, and and they remain very committed to the system and to to voting and to participation, which is much higher than elections here. Based on history, I wonder uh, what the likelihood is that a new party will last ten years in Israel. We'd have to look. I guess the, the history of new parties. They've you know the road is littered with the uh, right. signs and the uh, you know the um, advertisements for for different political parties that yeah. ran once or ran twice. And, yeah, c- collect those Kulanu billboards now; they'll be worth a bunch in a decade from now. Who <laughs> <laughs> remembers Dash and all these? Other oh, are you kidding? We can sit there all day naming names. <laughs> Malcolm, I want you to schlep back a Kulanu billboard the next time in your suitcase, <laughs> the next time you go to Israel. Uh, the the Irish Parliament has now joined. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you have the scorecard in front of you, but now, how many European countries have in some way recognized the Palestinian state? Too many. And uh, they follow France, Spain. Uh, it's almost become an everyday thing. I- Ireland actually had indicated long ago, and I reported this maybe a month ago, that they were going to do it. So it was not really something new that or unexpected. The real uh, change, and and so it's it's at least seven, eight, and and the, the EU itself is considering a resolution. But the resolution will not so much be the recognition, but it's the criticism of Israel and and. Uh, what we saw this week that the PA was accepted as an observer at the International Criminal Court opens up new opportunities for them to try and go after Israel, but it also opens opportunities to go after the PA for war crimes, which is what they will charge Israel with, and they will name specific commanders and specific officers uh, from the Gaza War, from other uh, uh, occasions. What does it do for Palestinian statehood recognition of the U.N.? That's an interesting question because it is related, not not uh, in the system, but uh, it could be a, a trade-off. That one of the things that he has threatened along that is if he doesn't get his resolution in the Security Council, and I believe that there is a possibility they will get a resolution in the Security Council, not recognizing the Palestinian Authority, but criticizing Israel and the settlement issues. There's a French uh, resolution, and I think all the talk about sanctions against Israel they're not going to be sanctions against Israel. Congress would never approve it. The American people wouldn't support it. And I don't think the administration would do it. But what they may do is try to punish and send a, quote, strong message to Israel. And that could be in the form of a resolution, which the United States does not veto in the Security Council, that criticizes Israel's construction in Jerusalem and uh, elsewhere. Hmm. For the PA, they may claim that as a victory. Uh, he, he, there is, uh, across the board, I think, opposition between Europeans and U.S. to their declaration of independent state and, and using the Security Council to somehow set a deadline for talks or to, to recognize it. 
um, but I, I think that they will give, he will gain, continue to gain status at different agencies as he said he would and he can. We'll have to see whether the same treatment that uh, will apply of America cutting off funding and Congress, I can tell you, certainly the new Congress will be in the mood to cut funding to the PA. Uh, these, are, these are all questions that we are trying to address and anticipate and look at. Um, but there are a lot of a lot of things that are at play right now. Wow. Uh, the PA minister who died this week, any evidence if, in fact, Israeli forces are responsible for that death? No, even the, even the Palestinian uh, uh, who conducted the autopsy, the doctor, and, uh, and others, the Israelis all came to the same conclusion. But, I mean, it was obviously in the incident and that he, he had clogged the arteries or something, and they it, it was activated, and then he had the... Uh, um, the attack, and that, that's what killed him. But they also prevented Israeli doctors from, from treating him, people there at, on the site, and maybe that would have saved his life as well. But, but you know, you had films of it. People know what happened exactly. It wasn't a confrontation situation. He was participating in a demonstration, and uh, but it was not an Israeli blow or anything else that caused his death. Seems to be at least one question a week that uh, a, a large number, a relatively large number of listeners ask me to try to include. And this week, as you would suspect, it's the waterboarding and torture report that we saw regarding the CIA and its CIA officers. Um, people want a perspective, Malcolm, both in terms of uh, fighting terrorism and uh, in terms of our role as uh, uh, as you know members of the Jewish faith and what position we should be taking when it comes to this type of action against uh, prisoners, against those from whom we're trying to get intelligence and, you know, important information. What's your assessment of the report this week? Again, I, I don't follow uh, the debates on this so, uh, as carefully uh, as I do other issues because it's uh, it's not something where we would get involved in, and it's... Uh, we have so many things going on right now. As it is, I don't sleep, and I would have to have another issue to keep me awake. <laughs> but uh, I think we have to think about the implications abroad, about how this was released, about the facts, about what what America can tolerate, can allow. But again, when you're in a war of terror, in an asymmetric war, you have to use unusual means. And, you know, we, we have often send people to other countries where these practices are more accepted. And if you look at the enemy that we're fighting, that will utilize every means, and I'm not saying that is a license to do uh, uh, anything, it's not, but you need, when, when you have smoking guns everywhere, you need to engage sometimes in practices that are otherwise... Uh, uh, you would not otherwise, and I think America does not. I don't think most Western countries do. The uh, Europeans have have uh, systems also. You know, they they can all dump on the United States, except till they get exposed for some of the things they're doing. And we know that uh, people were sent from France and that places to to other countries for interrogation. You know, we have to balance it. It, it is a it is a very difficult and complex question. Um, I was wondering why it takes so many years for a report like this. I don't know why it takes uh, another question, and then they dump, they 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 blame one administration or another. Right. When we know that this has been going on through numerous administrations, and uh, and whether the military and others who who engaged in it felt that they had no option, they, that after nine eleven, 
what, what would they have used? What means would they have used to try and find out if there was another attack being planned? Was it was uh, 9/11 isolated? Was there, you know, we captured some people? Would the, would they talk and tell us about other things? And Israel is the one facing this every day. You know, you see the attacks, and if they find one, and often you know there could be three, four suicide bombers or attackers in in take uh, working uh, in coordination. And that it is people who give them the information, it's on-the-ground intelligence that enables them to, to foil most of the attacks that are, are planned. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one because we know the general, and I say general, position of the media in this country regarding this issue. It's very hard to get that message out, meaning the other side it's of the issue. It's a legitimate issue. People are concerned right. about, about, you know, the, the, how does a democracy right. set the limits? But again, you know, we're not dealing in, you know, in the time of the American Revolution where everybody lined up on two sides and they just shot each other and we knew who had what weapons. Here you have a group that, that thrives on the fact that they can work through domestic populations, look at the recruitment of young people here in the United States, in Europe and elsewhere, who can use the Internet today to train people to carry out horrific attacks and there are attacks being uh, perpetrated in the United States or being prevented in the United States. And you see how the Arab countries are, are, are dealing with it. You know, Egypt uh, caught the guys who hijacked an Egyptian naval missile boat. I don't know how they uh, treated them, but they got the information that they were really on the way to, to hijack an Israeli ship. They're, they're being attacked all the time. Their soldiers are being killed. And we come down very hard on Egypt about the, the nature of the response. The question is, what, what options do countries have today when you face an enemy that has no restrictions, that has no limits? It will do everything. You know, Iran is, is the same thing. They, they, you know, started a campaign. We love fighting Israel campaign where they have teenagers all over the country, where you have the U.N. Uh, calling for to wipe Israel off the earth. And you know that there are people who respond to these genocidal threats, even the United Nations. Uh, the advisor on the prevention of genocide had to come out and make a statement that this is unacceptable. Unacceptable? This is outrageous. It's a member country of the United Nations. And, and our people are motivated. The attacks on, on, uh, about Al-Aqsa. And you see that the 86% of Palestinians believe that Israel is, is destroying or, or threatening the, uh, Al-Aqsa. And 80% support violence and the attacks on, on Israelis. So you're, 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 you're dealing with a situation where it's not an individual or an isolated group that engages in these activities, but people who are broad-based populations that are influenced uh, by these. You, you, the crown prince of, of Bahrain, which, as you know, is an Arab, uh, small country, wealthy, run by the Khalifa, al-Khalifa family. The crown prince, I think his name is Salman bin Hamad al-Khalifa, uh, said this is not a war on terrorism. Stop using the term. This is a war against the rise of evil theocracies, people driven by these radical extremist uh, ideologies and beliefs, or religious beliefs, and he said it must be named, shamed, contained, and ultimately defeated. And he, you know, the, the clarity with which he said this in a country that is facing Iranian uh, interventions and undermining uh, uh, of the regime, they see it clearly, and and we have to look at this not in the context it, it, in in isolation. You have to look at how the laws are applied, etc. Yeah. But you also have to look at it in the broader uh, uh, context of what we're we're, we're facing today. And, and they're uh, moving across borders, they move around the world. They're targeting 
you know, areas in the Caucasus. Now the Russians are, are, are you know, all of a sudden getting concerned because of the stands and because of the Caucasus where you see the rise of Islamists. And, and, and Chinese fighters were found both in Syria and Iraq coming from the western province of China, from Xinjiang, where you have an Islamist. Uh, uprising going on. And the incitement and the recruiting is going so well that the enemy is in the hundreds of millions, if not more, and maybe that's a good transition as we, you know, as we, as so many people on Friday mornings, uh, uh, unfortunately take away hopelessness, uh, from our conversation. Maybe this is a good time to remind everybody that we're about to start a holiday where the few were able to overcome the mighty and the larger numbers. And remember that in the context of history, which you always tell us is so important to always keep in the forefront of our minds, in the context of history, we have seen this before. Yes, and we, we should look at the reality that what I'm telling you is that it's not Israel that's the target. The Arab countries themselves, every one of them, the Muslim countries are all targets. And the battle that Israel fought for 50 years, 60 years alone, now has engaged the West, the others and Israel is not even the primary target anymore. They 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 outlined uh, Khamenei and the head of the IRGC spoke about the first target is Rome and the Crusaders, meaning Christians and uh, and the West. The second is Israel. Third, Mecca and Medina. That uh, it, I think it is a, a a much better situation in this sense that Israel has uh, uh, is not the sole target and it's not just Israelis who who have have the uh, come under fire. And in fact, if anything, Israel, in many respects, seems to be the best equipped in handling uh, terrorism, and, and their security still do an amazing job in preventing uh, attacks. But everybody, every European country today is under siege in, in the, on these issues. You saw the attacker this week was the nephew of one of the kidnappers uh, for the boys from June? Yes. So I'm, I'm just, I, I know that... Uh, we always talk about the family uh, relationships, the incitement, the closeness, etc. Again, and the and certainly the uh, recidivism when uh, when they leave the the prisons. You see again that this whole pattern of uh, anti-Israel rhetoric, uh, you know, just continues to spread, whether it's relatives or or neighbors, etc. And you know what the reaction to Israel bombing in Syria? The most frequent reaction I got from officials, from people, was, "How come the United States can't do this?" We're letting them fly. We're not doing anything. We can take out the Syrian Air Force in 25 minutes. Why? So Israel, in many respects, is, is defending itself in more forthright ways and has more support, I think, from amongst the American people for, for taking a strong stand because they want a strong stand against terrorism. Because everybody knows that we all become victims of it. We've said the same thing with Iran. I mean, we were t- t- turning to the United States and saying the same thing. I don't know if it would take 25 minutes, but uh, certainly, certainly they have the manpower to uh, to do a more efficient job than other countries, including Israel, would do. Well, Iran uh, actually poses a much greater threat because of its military capacity is uh, is better. But in the negotiations, if we really right. force, and the West would enforce, the United States is, if the West would enforce all of the, the sanctions, the people of Iran don't want this regime. Studies that have been done, it's uh, hard to do polling, but there, have been, there has been polling done. Young people don't want this regime, and we should be doing more to support them and to, to help assure that this regime doesn't have... Uh, a long life. All right. Next week, Shabbos Chanukah. Wishing you a happy and wonderful Chanukah, Malcolm, and uh, have a wonderful Shabbos. You and all the listeners, and look at the lights and celebrate. Uh, that's for sure. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman. Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations joins us for the weekly update here. Friday mornings, JM in the AM.